remain standing this morning as I read from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. I'll read verse 7 to the end of the chapter as we continue to look at this conflict, not only between the woman and the dragon, but the child born to that woman and the events of that heavenly kingdom that even now we see manifested on earth. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe! to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, truly majestic things we find in your word that you would grant to us ears to hear. Cause us to know and to understand and to therefore keep your word as we desire to be profitable servants in the work of your service. O Lord, use us to build your kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. A more conflict for us even this morning to observe as we study the drama that unfolds as a result of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his taking the throne of heaven and earth, and if last week served as any kind of encouragement to you that despite the aggravations of the dragon, the serpent, Satan, the devil, the one who sought to throw mankind into a state of misery and rebellion, what we must see is that all of his purposes 
will come to an end. I cannot think of a more important truth than this in days like today. Either in days in which the church is suffering, which is really every age of the church, depends on where you are, or where the church has been compromised by the encroachment of worldly theology, worldly practice, which probably also describes every age, depending on where you live. You and I are probably nestled well in an age and culture of great compromise. Uh, You need only visit the social media posts of fellow so-called evangelicals to see that the church has been compromised by many of the doctrines and practices of this world. And that is, in some fashion at times, enough. It is enough that the world or the church thinks that their great mission is to be liked by the world so that she might be given an invitation to share a gospel that then would invite them to be disliked. It's an ironic thing, isn't it? As Christ would say, to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God, and that enmity is on full display here. And so as we move to this text, I want us to see that despite present appearances, there is a great spiritual battle that wages not only in heaven but now on earth. Now, yesterday, I got up early, as I have been doing lately, and I went to, I went to the pool in order to swim laps. And as I was jumping in the pool and we were taking breaks between intervals, I looked up and there was a double rainbow. You've seen the YouTube clip, maybe? <laughs> Go look it up after church. No, don't. Wait till tomorrow. The, the second rainbow faded quickly, but as I was doing these intervals and I was breathing to the right and a lot, I got to see it a lot, I kept seeing it and it just, the marvelous glory that the world has corrupted. There is in the sky, as the sun was rising in the east, shining light on this big dark cloud in the west, a rainbow that appeared. And with every breath, I kept thinking, promise, 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 promise. Make the rainbow, can I say this great again? Can I say it that way? I hope it doesn't ruffle too many feathers. Take the rainbow back. Don't let the world take these things and corrupt them. Satan is a great schemer, but we have the spirit and we can be even more cunning than he. And as I was continuing my laps, I thought, As I looked at the rainbow, promise, promise, promise. As we look at the scriptures, it is the promises of God unfolding one after another such that we find the culmination of all of these promises coming to their head in Revelation chapter 12. The overthrow, the conquering, the success of the war of the forces of righteousness over the forces of wickedness. This is what Christ has done. Promise after promise after promise, God has fulfilled his loving kindness, his purposes on earth as it is in heaven. And here in Revelation chapter 12, we find something that is for us the great shift in epochs between the Old and the New Testament. If you want to know what has changed, this is what has changed. 
which is why the church is in Gastonia and no longer just in Israel. Because Christ is having his day, and he will have dominion. Two points that I want to make this morning, as it relates in particular to the dragon and the woman, Satan and the church. The first, the dragon is banished, and second, the dragon brings war. Let's look at the first point, the dragon is banished. This scene opens in quick continuation from last week, and there's just too much to say it all in one Sunday. The dragon is banished as a result of this great war that is in heaven. And war broke out in heaven, verse 7, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, this morning, we are introduced to a reality that has always been a conflict in the heavenly places between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It is a reality of which Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is the church, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, what Paul is not saying, like many Christians would say today, that there is a lane, a very specific lane that the church is to be in, and therefore anything that isn't gospel-centered is outside the lane of the church. That is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is that every wickedness, all evil on earth, isn't man-derived, it is satanic in its origin. And so when we go out to fight... We're not just seeking the overthrow of a party, either a political party or some cult. We are seeking to overthrow the forces behind it that are moving it forward, the foundational ideas. We are going after the devil. It's a greater fight than even you and I often think about. It is a cosmic, eternal, heavenly fight. Conflict. Now, what is the war about? When did it begin? Well, it began when Satan sought to steward himself over his own life. Satan didn't want to be governed as an angel in the service of Almighty God. He wanted rule and reign for himself. What enticed him was the same message that he delivered to Eve and to Adam. You can be like God. But Adam and Eve were not ready to be stewards of their own lives. They did not yet know. And in many ways, spiritually speaking, though they had apparent age, they were immature. They were like children in that sense. And God would have, over time within the garden, grown them up so that he could then enlist them in the cosmic battle before Satan and those wicked angels. But they weren't ready yet. They were vulnerable, especially the woman. And they were thrown into a state of 
chaos and sin and misery. From the first moment, Satan sought to bring to nothing all that God said is good. This is what Satan does. He is the great accuser, the great disruptor. Like a snake in the hen house. (laughs) Kill the snake. Save the hens. Kill the dragon. Get the girl. Remember from last week? And so, rather than leaving to the Lord control and to receive from him his directives, Lucifer, the great serpent, Satan, the devil, all of those are names or titles for the evil accuser, fell. And in verses 1 through 6, in his fall, he took with him a third of the heavenly host of angels. Now this war raged. And Satan's tactics were cunning and represent a kind of wicked wisdom, if I can say it that way. Satan, in the book of Job, comes to the Lord and he says, Have you considered your servant Job? And this scene is not new, even in the book of Job, or unique. There are times where Satan comes before the throne of heaven in order to accuse the saints of God. But all of that, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, comes to an end. It changes. That the great accuser, who once had free reign of the heavenly places, no longer has free reign. That is the war of which John writes. And that war is tied, if you're wondering, in terms of the timeline of the plan of redemption to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ takes the throne, Satan is no longer welcome. In fact, it's in the book of Mark where we read that Christ has bound the strong man and now there is free reign in the house. There is now a place for the martyrs. And all the heavenly hosts to gather around that throne and there is only singing and joy and delight. Satan has been thrown out. This war that Michael and his angels fought was fought through and with the power of the resurrected Redeemer. The strong man has been bound. Christ suffering for the sins of the elect, those whom Satan wished to condemn, His burial, feeling the effects of God's wrath for a time. His resurrection as a raised, innocent, glorified man. His ascension to the throne and his inauguration as king of heaven and earth. All of this has changed the course of human history. Satan does not belong. And so Michael and the angels of heaven like bouncers, kicked him out. He's gone. Now, in order to understand the real implications of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we must broaden our horizons beyond this sort of gospel-centered emphasis that we often are told that we need to think about as it relates to the gospel. And in fact, Ian, not Ian Murray, J.I. Packer's forward, to John Owens, the death of death and the death of Christ. In it, he says, as you think of the death of death in the death of Christ, I want you to sort of open the aperture, 
That is to open the lens, the way you think of the, the effects of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is more than just being about you. The gospel is more than that time in which Christ came into me, my life and saved me from my sins, but rather the full effect of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is a total cleaning of house as it relates to heaven and the throne of heaven and the power and audience that Satan once had in the Old Testament but no longer has. Christ is cleaning house. I spoke of it already in Mark chapter 3. The Lord calls the disciples to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now remember, Jesus had been accused that he was the son of the devil. But Jesus had been casting Satan out of people, demons even. And he says, how can that happen? Why would Satan do this? It doesn't make any sense. For if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in an age, in the age of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and inauguration as the king of heaven and earth, and Satan has been bound. That's why the church is growing. It's not because we're applying the Harvard business model to church growth. That is satanic. Because it's not word-based. Instead, what we find is that now that Satan no longer has the power that he once had in the Old Testament, but has been bound through the ministry of Christ Jesus, and salvation and strength and the kingdom belong to our God, verse 10, that the accuser of the brethren no longer speaks from that same place of power. He has been bound. And so you and I now, in the ministry of planting and serving and building the church of Jesus Christ have been guaranteed not only success or absolute success, but ultimate success and ultimate victory. Church plants rise and fall, don't they? The church closes here. Sometimes those churches should close. But then there are those churches that are preaching faithfully the word of God, and they do close. But there are more saints on earth now than there ever have been. Yes, the kingdom is a numbers game. But the success of the building of the kingdom does not belong to a man, but to the Holy Spirit, whom Christ has sent unto all the earth, so that the glory and righteousness of Christ might be seen and experienced and felt by the sons of men, the woman, the church. How then do they overcome? What was the weapon? And why had they not yet succeeded in the way that they succeed in chapters 12, verses 7 through 12? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
That's our weapon. Now, we can fight, and there's many ways to fight against wickedness. But none will overcome the schemes of the devil, ultimately, that are not the proclamation of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. If we at Reformation OPC wish to be successful in the overthrow of the power of the devil here on earth, and we'll look at that in a minute, the fight on earth, then we must proclaim what? The only thing that can overcome him. The blood of the Lamb. How do we apply the blood of the Lamb? We preach the blood of the Lamb. We proclaim Christ and him crucified, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. We proclaim Christ's death until he comes. We eat his body and we drink his blood. We baptize our children and we say to the devil, This is Christ's. It is not yours. Hands off. And so, children, when Satan comes to tempt you, to accuse you, to bring misery and doubt and despair, there is, as Luther would say, one word that will fell him, and that is what? Christ. You see, oftentimes we think, all right, I'm tempted. And the world says what? You need to develop your own truth. Be true to yourself. Satan loves that. Why? Because it leaves you completely naked, completely vulnerable, completely helpless. There is no shield of salvation. You are laid bare before the fiery darts of the evil one. If you think for a moment that you can say, my truth is what will deliver me. And this is why so many today reel under the weight of so many despairing ideas. It is the result of the devil seeking to bring men under the weight of his misery. But rejoice. There is a way in which we can overcome. And they overcame him again by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore, right? Martyrs. Many suffer even. But what can Satan do to our souls? If we are in Christ Jesus, if we are united into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection, then even as we die in Christ, we can no longer, there is nothing the accuser can bring against us if we are hidden in Christ. What will he say? Psalm 103, you're not even a sinner. Though you may sin, before the Father, you are holy and righteous, and Satan cannot in any way say, see what he's done? For God does not see it. There is no accusation that can be brought against. This is the fullness of the work that Christ has done for men. Christ has begun that which he will one day finish. The absolute overthrow of all of Satan's schemes. And not only that, but someone asked me, what does the devil know about his end? Well, what does he know? Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's not us, right? I mean, I guess you could graduate to that in the middle of service. And we'd have to stop the service We'd have to call the ambulance and they'd have to take you. And the coroner would say, congratulations, you are now part of the church triumphant. 
We're not part of the church triumphant. That means we're not dead yet. Is that funny, Elijah? That is. It actually wouldn't be that funny if it happened. But what a day to die, the Lord's day. What a day. But we who are on earth, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. We've seen those in heaven already, and that's one of the reasons why they're rejoicing. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. That's you and me. And the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because why? He knows he has a short time. He knows, his, he knows his time is coming to an end. He knows that God has, well, sentenced him to eternal damnation. Now, Satan is no longer able to enter before the throne. His ability to accuse is limited. And that Christ and his church have free range of the spiritual realm. The strong man is bound. And so there is no one near the throne any longer to condemn us. Isn't that glorious? The great judgment seat of Christ, there is no prosecution. There is no accuser. And this is why Paul in Romans 8 writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? And it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Nothing. There is no heavenly accuser anymore. And the one who seeks to frustrate the plans of God, which cannot be frustrated, he is gone from that heavenly court. But even as Satan has been cast down from heaven, which is part of the unfolding of the plan of God's redemption, he has been cast down to earth. And so for we who remain, despite this woe, and here specifically, the inhabitants of that land who dwelt in the city of Jerusalem, for what did Satan seek to go after? Where was Satan's target? It was that city, that city of Jerusalem, that people who had been given promise, and yet God, in his sovereignty, used the devil to bring judgment upon those who failed to heed the warning of his great prophet, the priest, the king, even Jesus, while on earth, when he warned his disciples and warned all who would listen, when the abomination of the desolation comes, get out of the city. Which is a picture of what? Not only is it a historical event in which God gives to the devil that land that wanted the devil. Why did the devil go to Jerusalem? Why did God give him free reign of that city? Why do we see all of the results, those demonic beings that came forth from the pit earlier in the book of Revelation? Why? Because Satan was king of that city. 
Because Jerusalem had become Egypt. Because they had rejected the Messiah. And if you do not reject or embrace the Messiah, if you do not worship the giver of life, there is only one alternative. And that is what? To listen and to be enchanted by the lies of the devil. Doesn't Christ say this? No, your father is the devil. Jerusalem had become Sodom. She had become Egypt. And God in his glory, in his providence, in his sovereign direction over the affairs of men, sent Satan to that city. And so the woes are given. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth or the land and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Satan seeks to destroy, but there were many, there were many who fled that city. And that's where we'll go now. The dragon brings war. Not only was there a celestial, heavenly, I don't mean stars and planets, that unseen realm in which those angels and God, who do not have bodies like men, fought over the future. Now let me say one point, and I, I debate maybe the wisdom of this point, but I want, you to, I want you to understand the way I think about these things. Whatever your millennial position is, I want you to think this way. Satan knows how the story will end. And there is a reason why he wages war so violently against us. And that is because he knows that the end is for Christ to have absolute dominion and he wants to frustrate that purpose as much as possible. And the greatest, well, the worst thing that you can do in pursuit of the heavenly kingdom is to give up on the pursuit of earthly dominion. All Satan needs to do is to get you to stop fighting. That's it. To think that there is now peace That is not the case. That is called immunitizing the eschaton. Our fight will not be over until Christ returns. But I do believe this. As we fight, the success that we find in verses 7 through 12 will be experienced in greater ways in verses 13 through 17. Because Christ has kicked Satan out of heaven, Christ through his church will take dominion now over the earth. Agree or disagree, I only ask you to do this. Fight with me. Fight to the death. Fight with the word. Fight with the proclamation of the blood of the Lamb. Because Satan knows his time is coming, and that does not make him impotent. It makes him crazy. It makes him even more violent even more earnest and urgent. But we know that God, God is ultimately in control, and that is what we find. Beginning in verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman. Who is the woman? Roman Catholics say it's Mary. It's not Mary. It's the church. Mary's part of the church. She isn't the church. The woman, that is the people of God, the family of God, who gave birth to the male child, 
But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time. Now, historically speaking, I think it's fulfilled when those in Matthew 24 who listened to the warning of Christ of the abomination of the desolation fled. And this is how I want you to think of it. In the book of Exodus... When God, through his servant Moses, says to the Israelites, I will lead you out, but the tenth plague is coming. An angel of death is going to come across the land. You get beneath the blood-stained lintel. And then they left. And all who were covered by the blood of that animal were freed from the wrath that was poured out upon Egypt. Jerusalem has become Egypt. And in AD 66... Many fled for three and a half years. That's what this time, times and half time, stands for throughout the book of Revelation. It's a period of time of three and a half years. Many of the saints left Jerusalem and they went to Pella for three and a half years prior to the sacking of the city of Jerusalem. Now, like any sort of partial preterist interpretation of the Old Testament, and or, I mean of the New Testament or this book in the book of Revelation, there is also a sort of larger application, and that is what? Well, one of the things that we've been doing lately as a session is trying to figure out, all right, we need to get a new t-shirt. We used to have t-shirts. We had these great red t-shirts that said our name. And so we went to one of the members in our church who's really good at coming up with stuff like this. And one of the things that he came up with was a T-shirt that has a picture of a boat that says, Get in the boat. The flood is coming. Now, that's a bit metaphorical. It's, it's, it's actually, we're going to have to change that because a flood isn't coming. Although it is interesting that the serpent here is said to use a flood, which God has said, I will never do again. Satan loves to invert the promises of God. But the call is clear. Flee to Christ for salvation because judgment is coming. We say that today, don't we? Because one day God, even as he judged Jerusalem, will judge all the earth. And those who are hidden under the blood of Christ will be saved. They will not be swept away by the flood, but they will stand in the judgment. What is Satan right now trying to do? Get as many as he can on his boat to hell, if I may continue to use that metaphor. To bring as many as he can who bear the image of God, that unholy rainbow, so that they may reject the offer of salvation. This is why we need to take this stuff back from the world. Because the world says what? Pride is the way to salvation. The scriptures say what? Humble yourself. Kiss the son lest he grow angry with you and you perish in the way. Satan is here. And he in his power is endeavoring to frustrate the plans of the church today. But even as God delivered the saints in the time of the fall of Jerusalem, he will continue to preserve and protect a people for himself so that they may not experience the wrath of the serpent. Now you go, all right. It reads like a graphic novel, doesn't it? This is another thing we ought to be very careful. Don't be sort of casual to the signs and the wonders of these things and park them in the category of, this is kind of too sci-fi for me. 
and to grow disenchanted or to think this is how we talk about things that aren't real. These are the things that are real. And as God reveals them to John in these symbolic ways, what we are finding is a description of how all of human history has gone and is going up until this point. My point is this. Whatever our fight is, it is a fight for the future. It is a fight for eternity. It is a fight for the eternal souls of men and women and children. And it is not a fight in which we are helpless. But it is a fight. It is a fight. And how many of us are unprepared for it because we have grown fat? Deuteronomy chapter 32. We let the blessings of God lure us into a false sense of comfort and we kick against God because we've grown fat. We're not lean because we're not training. We're not wielding the weapon that is the sword. We're not going out on little, little <laughs> excursions against the kingdom of darkness because there's somebody out there that I love Who's under that other rainbow? Again, I'm using that phrase somewhat metaphorically. Under that other sign. Not the sign of the triumph of Christ, but what? The deceiver. That God is establishing now what I was getting to earlier before I got off topic. The exodus of the new church. Just as God led Israel out of Egypt, God delivered the saints from Jerusalem, God is delivering the whole company of the elect from the world that will be utterly wiped away. And the dragon is bringing war against the woman, against the church, in order to bring us low. But what is our weapon? This is why Luther's great hymn is of such great instruction to us. Elsewhere he writes, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. How can Luther be sure of that? Because he's read the Gospels. He knows that not only was Christ dead, but Christ was raised from the dead. And so when Satan comes to tempt you to despair, when he comes to accuse you in those quiet moments of the night, when your mind and your body are soft and weak and vulnerable, what should we say? You have no place here. This house, this house, my heart, my children, this church belongs to Christ Dragon, verse 17, was enraged. And even after he destroyed Jerusalem, where then does he turn his sights? The rest of her offspring. The Gentiles. You and me. Those who keep the commandments of God. He has his sights set upon us. The raging of the dragon will come to an end. His doom is sure. 
For even as Christ has banished Satan from the courts of heaven, even as he has declared war upon the offspring that remained. Reformation OPC, Gastonian, North Carolina. You better know Satan knows we're here. But we know where Satan's going. And what we are laboring, praying, preaching, serving, all of it is to do what? To give him no place to go but to hell. To give him no soul, to give him no quarter. To worship, I think last week at the beginning of the sermon I said, why ought we sing the doxology and sing it loudly? It's warfare. When certain armies would go and invade, they would practice this kind of psychological warfare. And in sort of the modern era, these armies would surround towns and they would blare these loudspeakers with the screams and cries of women and children that they had previously killed. To do what? To weaken their resolve so they may open the gates and so that that army may come in. We are a nation, the church, (laughs) a people, a body who wages war against Satan through the words that God has given us. We sing. Sing loudly. I don't mean sing on tune. If you need to learn to match pitch, learn to match pitch. I don't care. And your children that say amen, you don't have to, like a good Presbyterian, only say amen when you think other people are going to say amen. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) To be loud. To give Satan no quarter. You know why Satan hates Sundays? It's 24 hours of uninterrupted corporate worship aside from those. I mean, there's places, I guess there's boats. It is uninterrupted corporate worship throughout the world. He hates Sundays. Why? The same way you should love them. You know, we live in a world now that says there's nothing special about Sunday. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. If for no other reason, being here and worshiping together and exalting the name of Christ, and singing of the blood of the Lamb, and partaking of his body and blood, of saying to him, even as our children, even as our children are brought into the world, Satan is there lying in wait to eat their souls, is he not? And we say, I don't know what God thinks about them. No, I know what God thinks about them. Don't give them to Satan. Don't let him have them. Maybe it's your neighbor. Those folks don't belong to him. Claim them for Christ. I guess this is what Presbyterian naming and claiming should be. Claim them for Christ. Expect a fight for the souls of men are precious. They are eternal. They are the target. Expect that there will be major setbacks from time to time. For Satan is not a weak enemy. And he is often successful as men reject the word of God. Expect that your fight may end in death. But a life hidden in Christ, for as Christ is for you, who can be against you? Expect the fight of the church will end and in due time. 
For being such as Satan, the time is short. For us, it feels long, doesn't it? It seems to drag. Time seems long, but the victory is assured. And so, brothers and sisters, even as the fight has been brought to us, may we lay claim through Christ's precious blood. Let's pray. O Lord our God, this morning.